0: You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Morning, to the thinking, to, to the issues, to the subjects that we face in our day and our age, Pray you help us to think clearly about these issues, Pray you to give us all hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's difficult on a subject like this to sort of say that there is anything um, truly objective as <laughs> what I'll say this morning, so set yourself at ease, you can disagree with me this morning, okay, and, and all that I say this morning is meant to be. Uh none of it almost none of it do I mean for it to come across as this is God's way, this is how you should think about it, this is the one way that it is. Okay? Uh, there are a variety of ways of wrestling with this issue. And I understand that most of the or a couple of the Sundays this month you can wrestle with the questions that face church and politics and, and uh, church versus government is another way to think of it, or church versus political institution, how do we wrestle with that? And I want us to kind of step back even beyond this and ask us, as I'm erasing this, uh, ask us kind of one big question. And that is this what is God's mission on earth? Like, what is it that God is trying to accomplish? I'm not looking for a specific phrase, I'm not looking for one right answer. I just want you to dialogue with me about that a little bit. Okay, so, tell me. God's mission on earth. Relationship with us. Good. What else? Redeem mankind. Redeem
1: mankind. Very good.
0: What else? Establishing his kingdom. Okay, what does that mean? What is his kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? Where perfect will is done, okay? God is establishing his kingdom, okay? Um, that, those are some important words that we'll come back to later this morning, okay? What else? God's vision on earth. Glorify himself. Glorify himself. These are all good phrases, good, good pieces. Or let's just do a couple more here. Because we can put them all together. Make things good. Put the world to rights, as uh, Mitchie Wright would say. Set everything right. Turn it up just a little bit. Yeah. Think of it this way.
2: Another way to ask the question is why did
0: God create? He could love people to be the object of his affection. People that, can, that would love him would choose to love him. Sure. And think of it this way: if he thinks through the story of God, he thinks through the story of what God's work is on earth. If at first we begin with creation, we begin with God creating and desiring people that would desire Him and making a race, making humanity in His image, so that we would know Him, we'd be known by Him, so He could love us. All that's great. And then the fall happens. And now mankind, humanity, is separated from God. like Bill said, God then wants to sort of find a way or make a way to restore relationship with us, correct? And in a sense, you could say, everything about the world has not been functioning the way it was meant to function since the fall. Is that true? Yeah. That even for creation itself, there is some measure which even creation itself groans and is not the way it fully was, the way it once was before the fall. That after the fall when Adam and Eve sin, that all of creation, not just man's relationship with God, but nature itself, creation itself, has been <laughs> splintering and fracturing and is somehow less than what it once was. And that part of God's mission on earth, or of God's mission on earth, is to somehow, like Joe said, make it all good again, restore it again, to redeem humanity, to rescue humanity, and to put everything right to set everything right again. Would you agree with all that so far? Okay? Then what we have to think through after this is, what is God's, what has been this way? What was God's first vehicle for, for doing that work, accomplishing that mission? What was His first vehicle? The way that I think about it, in the outline, of the scripture, the outline of the history of the Old Testament is, that the first vehicle God chose was, family and a family that eventually became a nation. Right? In Genesis 15, when God calls out Abraham and says, okay, look, I'm going to make this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to choose you, I'm going to choose your family, I'm going to choose a nation to come out of your lineage and come that man. You're going to make some good things happen. Now here's the question. Is God's plan for Israel just to make Israel great? None. No? Thank you. Alright, what else was his plan So that all the other nations may be blessed. You will see this even when he's talking to Abraham. Look, my plan from the beginning, yes, I'm going to sing out, yes, I'm going to change you. Yes, I'm going to work with one nation. But my plan all along is a massive rescue operation for the whole world. I'm going to use you to put everything together. You would have to say as Israel and had all this influence where nearby nations were coming. But what were they coming to see? A nation of wealth, a nation where the citizens were stressed and taxed and working really hard, a nation where there was lots of other idols. Okay? Now follow me in this. By the time you get to Jesus' day, by the time you get to the New Testament, there is there are a lot of different things going on. Israel hasn't been a nation for the way that it once was for a long time. Hundreds of years. Okay? By the time you get to Jesus' day, there's a few groups of people that are trying to figure out a way to make this work. Now, let me stop here and suggest a few things. I'm going to write down four words. If you've ever read through the Old Testament books of Leviticus... Some of the numbers, maybe some of Deuteronomy. You'll know that there you notice that there's a lot of laws, lots of rules. And in one sense, you can test this and maybe add to this, but in one sense you could say that every one of the laws that God gave Israel as a nation were to help keep society or make them keep them safe, orderly, free, and godly. Think about it, there's some laws uh, I think it's in Leviticus where it talks about if you have a roof in your house you need to build a wall around your roof. Now that doesn't make sense to us, but think about flat roofs and you need to build sort of a wall around your flat roof so if anyone's working on your roof that they won't fall over and die. You know, so there's some laws that are simply there to keep people safe. There are laws there that help to help keep society orderly. You know, there's laws about how to uh, go to the bathroom outside the camp. You know, that doesn't make sense to us, but when you don't have running water and you don't know, have plumbing. Be grateful to people that's about outside camp, you know, not upstream in the river, you know. Just saying. So so there's there's lots of laws about, about the order of it, about which tribes could settle in which area of the country and which was their inheritance and all this all this stuff. There's designations to help keep Israel orderly. Thirdly, there's laws to help keep them free. You know, one of the reasons I mean there's A lot of reasons why God told Israel not to intermarry with other nations. But one of the main reasons for it is, if they ever got so diluted in terms of their race, this was back in the day when uh, you could get overtaken by another sort of tribal nation state. And part of God's plan for keeping them free was to keep their race intact. And it's a very different world than obviously what we live in. And then of course there are laws that were simply about keeping Israel godly. You think about a law like shalt not "Thou shalt not kill", not kill sure. helps keep society safe, doesn't it? Sure. It helps keep society orderly, absolutely. It helps keep society free, no doubt about it. But there are other laws, but it also is part of being godly. But there are other laws that you have to say, you know what, I'm not sure where it falls under safe, free, orderly, and all that. But this one, it sort of has to do specifically with keeping men godly. These would be the kinds of laws that have to do with sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and sacrifices that you have to offer you to were a sinner, or a you. Needed God's forgiveness or something? And so, you if you think about it, you might be able to f- break down almost every law in the Old Testament to, to Israel into one of these four categories. Now keep in mind, I want you to think of this word right here. Let's write it in red. This is the laws of nation-state. The geopolitical entity, it's its it's its own body, the laws of the nation state. At this time, for for the majority of the Old Testament, what is God's primary vehicle for getting His work done on earth? It was Israel, which was a nation state. Am I right? Yes? So you might say that the kingdom of God was advanced in the Old Testament through an actual political nation. Correct? Right. Now, what happens by the time you get to Jesus' day is you have a bunch of different groups. You have Israel there as is kind of a nation, but they're not. They have a puppet king named Herod. He's kind of in charge. You know, some of the Jews, but a lot of the devout Jews don't really respect Herod, for a number of different reasons. But you really you also have Rome, who's really in charge, it's the Roman Empire. And so you have these little factions, these little groups of people that are trying to find it's ways. Water. To bring the kingdom. And I want you to pay attention to this. They're trying to find ways to bring the kingdom. So, one group you have is called Zealots. They were the ones who were fanatics. I mean, these guys would just go kill people because they wanted to overthrow the Romans. These guys wanted Israel to be back to its political dominance, okay? Zealots. The name is sort of self-explanatory. The way of the zealot. Was the way of power, the way of murder, the way of force, the way of takeover, the way of let's get back in charge again. And they have a nice proud history of things that they did to other pagan rulers. And then you have the Pharisees, and the way of the Pharisees would be you know, we don't really care as much about political rule, we don't necessarily want to overthrow Herod, but what we'd like to do is give the law the most importance. So we'd like to follow everything that we. Now, a very interesting thing happened when Jesus showed up. Because every Jew in Jesus' day was expecting a Messiah that would come and restore a nation-state, specifically Israel, back to the place where it had laws that made everybody safe, and everybody orderly, and everybody free, and everybody godly. And it would be a new golden age of Israel, just like it was under David and Solomon. Jesus comes along and He says, True, I am a king. But I am also a suffering servant. And this is where most Jews kind of got lost in Jesus' day. Because there were a few prophecies, particularly in the book of Isaiah. One that spoke of Messiah being a king in this, this glorious new age of Israel, the nation. And then he had prophecies about God having sending a servant of his that would suffer and go through a bunch of, endure a bunch of pain. But they, most Jews didn't think it was about the same person. And then Jesus comes in and says, Hi, I'm the King, I'm the Messiah, but I'm also the suffering servant. And they thought, no way. This is why when Jesus died on the cross, many many Jews, this is why Paul writes, the cross is a stumbling block, a stone of offense. Because they could not conceive a Messiah being someone who would be killed at the hands of another political ruler. Why? Because for them, kingdom had always been advanced Through power and through a nation. Does that make sense? Think about it. For them, kingdom was always advanced through power and through nation. Through a powerful ruler of a nation. And Jesus comes along and does nothing to overthrow the powerful pagan ruler of his day. He does nothing to establish himself as a powerful ruler. Instead, lays down his life and gets killed. And all of a sudden, these Jewish followers of Jesus are thinking, something is wrong here. Something's different. How is God going to advance kingdom? We're familiar with kingdom. We understand kingdom. God wants to build His kingdom on earth. Therefore, and for them, it always meant that God was going to advance kingdom. It meant a nation. Their nation was going to be powerful again. Their nation was going to have a powerful ruler again. Hold these words in your mind. Power and nation. That the way of advancing kingdom in their minds was power and nation, their nation. And Jesus comes along and I think suggests something different. It's almost as if he takes these three things and says, You know what? Let Caesar do that. Let the nation, the empire that you're living under, let them take care of laws that make society safe, orderly, and free. I've got a new way to make men God's name. And this is where you see Jesus all of a sudden saying, Look, you heard it was said, you heard that it was said, don't murder, I say you don't even hate. You heard, don't commit adultery, I say you don't even look on a person with lust. And all of a sudden, and then it Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And I wonder if Jesus was kind of su- suggested, look, the era of the kingdom being advanced through a nation and a ruler and power is officially over. The era of the kingdom being advanced through nation, ruler, power is all over. There's a new way that the kingdom will advance. A better way. The way that all of history actually has been foreshadowing And all all of a sudden, he says, it's almost, we kind of see this thing in the New Testament where, you know, even Paul, when he's writing his letter to the Romans, saying, look, you know, pray for those of government everyone who bears the sword bears for a reason. In other words, let them do their thing to keep society safe, orderly, and free. this is still under the realm of government, but this is no longer under the realm of government. Does this make sense? We want these four things. We want, in Israel, a Jew that, had, that was familiar with Israel's history would have known look, look, we want a society that is safe and orderly and free and godly. But it used to be that all of that was the domain of government. And now, only these are the domain of government. And this is the domain of a new entity altogether that Jesus introduced called in church. Now, that's significant. That's significant because, great, this is under the realm of government, this is no longer. The the mission of making men and women godly is no longer under the realm of government as it was under Israel, it's now under the realm of the church. Another way of asking this question is, or thinking about this, to ask the question, what is the New Testament analog of Israel? In other words, when you read passages about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, what is that who do we draw the parallel with what do we draw the parallels today? America or the church? Church. And Paul helps us because he does it himself. Calling us a spiritual Israel. We are the new Israel. Church, the new breed, the new people of God. And the language of the New Testament writers is very intentional. Calling us a new people of God. So is it to trigger people's just as Jews were called, just as this nation was called the people of God, we are now all the people of God. And Paul goes beyond the sea. He says, "Look, in Christ, if you're in Christ, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male, there's no female. We're a new breed of people here, the people of God, and we have a new way of doing things, and we'll have a, a better way of doing things." Now, this is where we get in trouble because. Most of the time, even though we know, if someone really sat down to not think about it, who is the modern day analog to Israel, we would say the church. as we talk in life, we talk as if we still believe America is the modern-day analog to Old Testament Israel. Right. You you can hardly go to a prayer meeting for America before someone will read Second Chronicles 7. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and people that Is that written about America?
1: It's
0: written about Israel. What is the analog for us today? If we, God's people, would repent, and God would start with us, remember how Paul says it, I think in his letter to Corinthians, he says, judgment must begin in the house of God. Maybe it's in Hebrews, I don't know. Judgment must begin in the house of God. And he talks about saying, look, I will will shake everything again, starting with the church, and then afterwards. So we don't read 2 Corinthians seven and apply it to America. and you know, then on Fourth the of July, it's have a prayer we say, if your people would, you said your people would humble themselves. So God, we Americans humble ourselves. And God's saying, I don't think in terms of nation states anymore. Right. Is my is God's vehicle for advancing kingdom still a nation state? No. When did that end, Jesus? And it's almost as if Jesus was saying, look, I knew all along that even the nation-state that I chose, Israel, the seed of Abraham, that even they wouldn't be able to do it to its full extent. But I, as a Jew, I, as someone from the lineage of Abraham, I am the fulfillment in myself and the fulfillment of everything. Everything Israel was supposed to do to rescue the world and redeem the world and bring all nations to see the light of Yahweh, everything Israel could not do, I, as a Jew myself, Jesus said. Would say and fulfill all of it in me, in myself. Does that make sense? So you think of this God's vehicles for, for redeeming and rescuing. You have Israel, and then out of Israel, Jesus, and Jesus, the ultimate vehicle, the ultimate one, the ultimate person who carried out God's plan, and Jesus then launched the church. Here's where I think it leads us I'm not sure it's to the advantage of the kingdom that we have for Christians in office. It may be a nice thing to do because we should have Christians in every sphere of life. We should have Christian plumbers, Christian electricians. But is our goal as the church to get Christians in office? Not necessarily. Maybe. I that that, that will allow that it's possible. Possibly one goal or a goal. But is the focus of advancing God's kingdom on earth, is it still through a nation? Here's what I would argue. I would argue that though it may be beneficial to have Christians as elected officials, and though there's no harm in it, and certainly because you can't, maybe you should. I would say that the goal of the church is not political reform. The goal of the church is to make men and women it. The laws of the land are there to help keep society safe, orderly, and free. But the vehicle of government and the vehicle of the ballot box is for those three things, and the vehicle of church... Is to make people God. Now, this is why I'm not as concerned that prayer is not in schools, as much as I'm concerned that they're not passionate Christians in schools. It doesn't matter if we change legislation so we can put prayer back in schools, but we need our God-carrying, God-presence-carrying believers in schools. The power is not in the legislation, the power is in the people of God, the new people. And every time Christians reach for the vehicle of government, I would suggest that we're choosing the lesser vehicle. That God is, when Jesus came, He was saying to His church, to Peter, to the disciples. Guys, you know, they asked Him right before He says to them, Is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember? Notice the way they work. It. Is it at this time that you will restore kingdom to a nation? Is it at this time that you're going to advance kingdom through our nation again? And Jesus says, it's not for you, you know. I mean, maybe Jesus is thinking, oh gosh, you still don't get it. And then he says, but wait, you're going to receive power from on high to be my witnesses. We all know what happens next. That's the upper room experience, the experience of the Holy Spirit. And they go out from there and they start preaching and converting and changing people. Not because a kingdom came back to a nation, but because a kingdom came through the new people of God. Kingdom coexists with nations. The kingdom doesn't advance through one nation. I'll say it again. Kingdom coexists with nations. The kingdom does not advance through a nation. We don't need God in the White House. We don't need God... (laughs) In America, so to speak, through legislature and elected officials, we need God through the church in America. We are it. I don't know if that depresses you or cheers you up, but you're the answer. You're the rescue plan. You're God's rescue plan on earth. And if Christians think that, what that means is we have to devote ourselves to changing, rocking the vote. That's fine. That's fine. But if that's the sum of our efforts, is about getting Christians to rock the boat, we're missing it. Your duties as church, as the new people of God, don't end at the ballot box. That's one tiny, tiny facet of it. The larger piece of it is the work that we have with what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. That's our role. That's our purpose. Our purpose is to announce the good news that the king that we've been waiting for, that all creation has been growing for hoping, waiting for, yearning for. The king has come. And his kingdom has arrived. And one day it will come in its fullness. And one day it will take over everything else. And all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. As the language is in the book of Revelation. One day it will come in its fullness. But until then, we work to advance kingdom. How? Here again, I think, when we find ourselves... Reaching for the way of power so easily. I want to highlight in your minds how twisted, how imperfect, how frail the vehicle of power is. Every time we think about influence or changing culture, we always think, we tend to always think in terms of power. What can I do to gain the power to change this? Oh, I know we'll make a law. We'll make an amendment. We'll do it, we'll, and we, we always reach for the vehicle of power. In a sense, you could say that all the temptations of Christ in the wilderness, when Satan tempted him while he was blessed were all temptations to use power to establish his messiahship, Messiah, his kingship. Think about it. Satan says, "Jesus." You're God, right? You're the Son of God. Turn stone to bread. Do something spectacular. Do something amazing. Get power. Use your power to coerce people. Use your power to wow people. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. And then he says, Jesus, you're the Son of God. Why don't you jump down to the temple? That's the most public place in the city. Jump down to the temple. It'll it'll be a dramatic display of power. You'll certainly gain your authority to be Messiah or your booklet of you being Messiah. You'll get that if you do this. And Jesus says, but that's the way of power. I don't function in the way of power. The way of Christ is not the way of power. So, he says, oh, I'm not that." He says, okay, well, well, then just worship me, give me some authority, and then I'll give you all the authority that I have. I'll trade you powers. You give me what power you have, I'll give you all the things in the world that I have power. Jesus says, I'm not doing that either. I don't need to play this power game. And it's interesting to me that if anybody could have used power to change the world, it was Jesus. And if so often, every time he does a miracle, he withdraws. When he has his largest crowd in John 6, when he actually does, multiply bread and feed thousands. And he has his largest crowd. What does Jesus do right now? He disappears, goes around the lake, but they follow him. And they said, John tells us, because they wanted to make him Messiah now. They wanted to give him the power now, to be ruler of a nation now. And what does Jesus do? He goes on and says his most offensive sermon. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And to a Jew, that's maybe one of the most offensive things he said. The biblical law says you don't need anything with blood in it. And here Jesus is encouraging what they think sounds like cannibalism they all leave. And some of the disciples are tempted to leave. Jesus, this is the moment where Jesus turns to Peter. And says, Peter, you too? You, you out? And Peter says, where else shall we go? As if to say, I don't get this stuff. Jesus, I'm going to be honest. I don't get this stuff. And I don't know why you didn't capitalize on that crowd you just had. And why, when you were at the apex of your power and influence. I don't know why you just did that and turned them all away. But the truth is, I got more else to know. You're it for me. And even at the very end, when Jesus is enduring the suffering and all the stuff leading up to the cross, if you're the Son of God, come down, remember? You can come off the cross, summon your angels, oh Messiah, taunting him. And yet, every time Jesus had the opportunity to use power to advance the kingdom that he did, he chose the way. The way Jesus said it was, I want to make this clear. It's not that I am weaker and therefore couldn't. It's that I'm so strong that I choose not to. Because he said, no one takes my life from me. Remember this? No one takes my life. It's not that I'm so weak I can't defend myself. No one takes my life from me. I am. The church advanced, you can stay book of Acts, not because they decided to grasp for power and try to get the largest crowds and rally up the most amount of people and influence government, take over. The church advanced because they repeatedly laid down their lives for one another and for those who didn't know Christ. They chose the way of the cross and not the way of the power. How does the kingdom advance today? If the kingdom no longer advances to a nation and a king and a ruler and power, how does the kingdom advance? It advances the Jesus' way. The cross. Now, let's get back to that. Okay? So, it's cute. It's nice. clever. like this thing. I don't afford the thing. It's, it's clever. What does that mean to me as I vote? I think it is an awesome gift that you can vote. I think it's great that, you can, that you've been asked to vote your opinions and your values. Please do that. That's what makes a democracy work is if you truly vote what you think, vote what you think. Read read the issues, read the ballot stuff, vote. No harm in that. But please understand that our way of advancing the kingdom is not on November 4th. Our way of advancing the kingdom is every day you live out the Jesus way. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, is, that is sort of the tricky thing because is there a way to... to serve or to help somebody else. I think, I, think, I think that's rare. I think it's difficult, but I think it's possible. But that's not the church. That's an individual who's makes sense to Here, do. Here's the thing I want to say this. My hope for you this morning is to give you a few questions and, and then to give you a little bit of language and then for us to wrestle out the specifics. There's a reason it's not all spelled out for us in the New Testament. That God enjoys the resting process of us and him uh, in our own hearts. And we're going to arrive at a conclusion, and I'll respect your conclusions, and you'll respect mine, and we'll be fine. But the, 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 the place where it's dangerous is where we stop resting with, with these questions or, these, or with this language and kind of say, this is the way it ought to be, and this is what everybody ought to do, and if you're not trying to advance it this way, then you're, you're I think that's where we're Helps make society safe, free, and orderly. Don't vote in a way that's trying to make society godly. That's not the vehicle for making people godly. So ninety-eight percent of the issues you'll vote on don't have anything to do with making people godly, so by all means vote. That's what I think. Is it silent because you disagree? creates an environment that's favorable for the church to do what the church does best. That's great. Listen, if you could choose between living in a society that allows the church to do its work freely versus where you're running for your life every day, I understand we all choose the one where we're allowed to do work and it's good, but I think that's you're exactly right. I mean, so, so we, there's a, a conditions exist where, you know, it's favorable for us to do our job as a church. The job has not even begun yet. The work has not even begun. Have, passing, getting a law passed is not nearly the same thing as having a heart changed and having a heart that believes in Jesus and having a heart that's convicted of sin that and, you know. Uh, and I'm not even sure that getting, so that's why I think getting a law changed, that can be good, sure. I mean, in so much it helps keep society safe, orderly, and free. But what I really want to give my life for to uh, draw It's huge, and I I think that's the other thing is we have to The way we read them now is as the church. And, you know, you know, there's debate uh, about was, was America a Christian nation, or is that just a myth whatever, or whatever? You know, I think we can agree that there's some measure of the founding fathers being influenced by Christian principles, whether they chose to believe fully in Christianity or not. Because wherever that debate goes, to a large degree, I think that debate is somewhat irrelevant. So if it is Church. I think the tendency is to, assume, oh, America's a Christian Nation they can do exactly what you said. The church that just rests on its laurels and says, oh, great, we've won. Yeah, they' even begun. You know? The church that its best work and its best growth when it wasn't housed in a Christian political and geopolitical nation state. Um, I- I'm not sure the debate about whether America's Christian or not matters. Who cares? We still have our work cut out for us. so Because they want to know. Should we do that? That's the rest of it. Because um, you have to think in terms of is my responsibility as a voter to sort of make everybody's life in, in society that I'm in, safer, more free and more orderly, Or do I just want to vote and close my values to everyone else? No. And I think the, the, the way this comes, it's maybe clearest focus for us is if you think about us being in the minority, it's comfortable to talk about that because evangelicals have a little bit of political muscle, but think about if somehow 50 years from now uh, the way that it is in London, the way that it is in a lot of the United Kingdom where Muslims are a very vocal minority or maybe even growing to become a majority, uh, where there's some courts in England or in London that actually will enforce Sharia law, if you both submit to it you can, you can take someone to this court and cut their hand off or steam, whatever, you know. Okay, so, now think about that. Do we want, should the vehicle of government be used, to what extent should be used, to what expense of the safety, orderliness, and freedom of others should we use the vehicle of government to make people godly? Answer that question with you as the minority. If, if Muslims were 60% of America, would you want them using the ballot box to change laws so that every time a person... Stole, they would get hands, a hand, hand cut off. Would you want that? No, because that is does not make you would say that does not make it safe or free or orderly for everyone else. Even though they make us godly in their opinion. Okay, so there there is this tension because on the one hand, your example about not being for torture, even if it is at the expense of safety, well, that seems great. That, but what about choosing to um, slip the throats of an adulterer? just because that's more godly but it's less safe or free for society. We don't want that. So where is this line? You know? And this is where you get in trouble when you say, the ballot box is my chance to turn everybody into my godly guy. It's not. The first goal as a citizen is to use the ballot box to help keep society safe, free, orderly. if you care about abortion, if you care about that and you're being asked, vote your opinion. If you care about some other issues, you're not being asked, you're not sure how to do that, find another vehicle through the church in society. You know, your question earlier about what do you do if it, something is happening that's not, that people are not, excuse me, being kept safe from, um, like the slavery issue or maybe an our day abortion issue. I think there's um, there's some clever ways around it and some of the ways to accomplish this. Um, how many of you saw the movie *Amazing Grace It's fascinating because, do you remember how to find anyone who used this loophole ballot box to end abortion it might be that we need to change our language from it's morally wrong to the approach of sort of that's why I like the approach that some people take with the we're defending the rights of the unborn, we're sort of defending we're keeping people safe just people that you don't see you know and I think that's, that's, that's a clever angle rather than sort of taking the approach of we need to outlaw abortion because it's against God's will the ballot box doesn't care about that. The arena of government does not care if it's God's will or not. But if you can speak the language of society, safe, orderly, and free, a limited abortion, that's genius, and that's what we should do. You know.